Well, good evening. Yeah. Uh, you guys doing well? Uh, I'm going to need another 30 minutes on the timer, just so you know. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. We've got a lot to cover tonight, uh, but before we do that, as you're opening your Bible, I think you can multitask really well. Uh, we'll we're going to wrap up uh, Romans 15 and go into 16 uh, tonight and we'll wrap it all up. But as you're turning there uh, to the book of Romans chapter 15, um, I'd love to say thank you. Um, You didn't have to come back. You didn't know. I'm sure you were looking forward to Lynn. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, But uh, it's been an honor uh, and a true joy uh, to be with you. And uh, I feel a little bit like Paul, uh, how he always tells people how he loves them. And we're going to see that tonight and how he grew to love the Romans without even being with them yet. And I feel like that with you. Like I've just really grown to love you. I don't know you all by name. Uh, I don't get to do ministry with you every single week. But for the last three weeks, man, I've really just uh, I have a fond affection for my friends now uh, at Chandler. Not that I didn't have it before, but now you have faces and maybe some names and I've gotten to talk with you before uh, the mine and after and I just really appreciate uh, the opportunity to do it and it's a true joy to share God's word with you. So thank you. So it was once said uh, that it's not great talent God blesses so much as uh, likeness to Jesus. Uh, God is far less concerned about how talented we are Uh, And way more concerned about our hearts and leaning towards being more like Christ. Uh, There's probably not, and I have to be really careful, but there's probably not any other biblical character. uh, And I hate to even use the word character because this is a real person. uh, But uh, a a person in the Bible uh, whose life's mission uh, was to pursue Jesus and to be like him. Uh, the Apostle Paul was on legitimate fire. Like if you were to touch him, your finger would burn. Uh, he was so much on fire for Christ. Um, and he literally burned for him. And his life was pointed into the direction of Jesus and following him. So much so that he told people bold statements like, follow me as I follow Jesus. Or another translation says, imitate me. As I imitate Christ. That's a pretty bold phrase to say. Wouldn't you agree? It's super bold. But a guy who says. I am everything I do. I'm channeling every ounce of energy. That I have. Into being like Jesus. Um, When you're living that way. You can say follow me. As I follow Jesus. And Paul's desire was to be like Christ. Paul's desire for this church at Rome. Was for them To be a group of people, probably more like an army of men and women uh, who would pattern their lives after Jesus. And Paul's heart, even today, if he were to speak to you and to me, it would be, would you, Cornerstone, be a people who are radically like Jesus? That's what his heartbeat is for the entire, that's why he wrote the book of Romans. And today what we're going to see as Paul rounds out his masterpiece and his greatest life's work and writing most likely, um, we are going to see him tell these Roman believers what he's going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to be a priority for me moving forward. And Paul is going to tell them. And if we look at it with intellectual eyes, uh, but not get too far from our heart, we don't always want to look through intellectual eyes. We want to feel it too. Uh, if we do this well tonight, we'll see that Paul is telling them where he's going and what he is doing. Therefore, 
is a great example for you and for me, for where we should be going and what we should be doing. You with me? So uh, this is probably a little more preachy, so i got to just tell you that right now, uh, so hopefully that's okay. Uh, and so I have points tonight, uh, three of them as a matter of fact. And so the first one uh, is this, and if you like to jot notes in your Bible, you can do that or on an offering envelope. They're good for giving and as well as taking sermon notes. Uh, but uh, the first thing that Paul uh, is going to be doing, and then therefore we should be doing, uh, is he says, number one, be a builder. Uh, you're going to notice Paul, uh, he is laser focused, if you haven't already seen it, in uh, the mission of building the church. He wanted to build the church in Rome. He wanted to build the church uh, in uh, Gentile cities, in non-Jewish uh, cities, and Jewish cities. He wanted to build the church of Jesus Christ in Rome, and he wanted to do it around the world. And uh, it was his life's work, his life's calling was to be a builder. And I want you to notice three ways how he builds up the Romans. Three specific things that he does and how he builds up the Romans, this new church. First, he builds them up in encouraging the way that they grow. Uh, he's noticed several things on how they've grown. So look with me uh, in verse 14. That's right where we kind of left off last time. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, uh, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Uh, he is building them up in how they live. He's encouraging how they live their lives. He says, you are live your lives. Uh, you have this goodness about you. You've received the goodness of God by your f- expressed faith in Jesus. And therefore, you have the goodness of God inside of you. And there is a distinct flavor about your life. There's a distinctness about something and who you are. You live your lives completely and utterly different than people who don't have Jesus. So he's building them up and encouraging them, telling them, man, I have totally seen how you have grown. And you not just talk the talk, but you what? Yeah, you walk the walk. You live what you have learned, which brings up the second thing uh, is that uh, he points out what they know. So it's uh, how they live and what they know. He's building them up in this way. He says in verse 14 again, he moves on. He says, you're full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. That's like um, overflowing. You ever filled up like your, um, does anybody do creamer in their coffee? Raise your hand. Creamer in your coffee? So you really don't like coffee. That's okay. Uh, I do it now too. I don't know uh, why. I just do. uh, Because it's good. That's probably why. Uh, But sometimes I have, when I go like, uh, and I get like one of those like travel mugs or whatever, and I'm filling that up, uh, I don't, um, I'm not good at math. And my depth perception is horrible. And so uh, I can't tell how full the mug is. And so sometimes when I pour that creamer in, and then I put my lid on and turn it, what do you think happens? Yeah, it pretty much explodes. Yeah, it just pretty much spills everywhere all over the counter. And uh, it's a gigantic mess. Um, Paul is saying that they are filled like, like, like a coffee mug that's been spilled over. It's too full. They've been filled, exploding with knowledge. Uh, and it's not just I know things. He's saying like they are theologically well-rounded. Uh, and here's what's so cool is that these Roman believers have... Um, uh, I don't want to say it. They have um, abridged the chasm that you and I struggle with in our lives of here's what we know and here's how we live. 
Does anybody feel the chasm in our lives of I know a lot of things about God and I know a lot of theological things and I know some things and maybe not a lot, but you might know a handful of things. And the reality is, is those handful of things would change everything about the way that we live. But there's sometimes a chasm between what we know and how we actually live. Anybody with me on that? Totally, right? So uh, what Paul is explaining about these Roman believers is that they have, uh, what he said in uh, Philippians chapter 2, that they have worked out their salvation. They have learned uh, how to bridge that gap between knowing and actually uh, doing these things. Now, what's interesting is that the language here uh, with these two phrases speaks or gives you the picture of a, um, anybody from Louisiana? Swamps, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's a picture of a swamp, um, and, uh, or, or, um, a rushing white water moment on the Colorado River. Massive difference, wouldn't you agree? And so they have learned that it's not just about me, This is going to feel like a criticism, but it's not, okay? It's not just about me sitting in a row gaining more information about God. It's not just about that. Because as you and I just gain more information and we go through one of the deepest books in all of the New Testament, the book of Romans, it has really shapes pretty much all of New Testament theology, almost. Uh, and that, and Paul is, we are grateful for that. But as we gain that knowledge and gain that information, you and I have a tendency to become like swamps. And why is a swamp a swamp? Stagnant, that's the word. Stagnant, it doesn't move. Well, you don't gain information in a row so that you can be, uh, uh, so that you can be a walking swamp. You don't gain this knowledge so that you uh, can, uh, uh, the Bible tells us that knowledge, it puffs up. Uh, it would be like your head is a tire and as you read God's word and as you learn things, or maybe a balloon, you just and your head just gets bigger, so big with full of knowledge, you can't even walk out the door. That is an ineffective Christian. What God says about, uh, uh, well, really what God is saying through Paul to the Romans is that the effective Christian, he's building them up in this way, is the one who learns how to work that salvation out and who learns that they are a river of life, not a reservoir that just holds information. So let me ask you a question really quickly. We got a lot to cover and I've only hit like five words. So um, why can't it be only about what we know? Did you say something? Somebody over here? Application. Application. Okay. What else? Why can't it only be about information and what we know or what we learn? It's meant, it's meant to be shared. That's great. Right here. I have two right here. Go for it. You got the mic. Um, I guess the goal is to actually have an impact on people with our behavior versus just no knowledge that comes out of our mouths. That's great. Perfect. Yes, ma'am. Well, you can know a lot of Stuff, but until you actually apply it and experience those lessons and use that knowledge in a practical way, right. can you really learn what God would want us to learn in those situations? That's great. I had a guy tell me one time, a uh, younger guy, not even out of like, univer- like Bible university yet, 
we were having a conversation. I first time I ever met the guy, and he said, um, God, I think I'm going to go plant a church in Ireland. And I, I, I took a step back, and I thought, what? Have you ever had a job? <laughs> You're going to go start a church in some place that you probably don't know much about. Maybe if you have family there, that's awesome. But like... Um, there's a difference between knowing about things in a classroom and then actually doing it. Uh, you know, I, 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 I struggle with, uh, like, in, even in seminary where you got a guy who you know you've never stood on a platform and ever preached to anybody, have you? Because this makes sense in your brain academically, but practically it doesn't hit the heart of a person that actually impacts the way they live their life. Are you with me? We're for that. Go ahead. I was going to say... It, as you begin to experience it, it's not just head knowledge that you're sharing. It's coming from your heart. Yeah. We got one more. Time for one more. And knowledge is very different than wisdom. That's right. You, you gain knowledge, but wisdom is what Scripture says to seek because that is who God is. And when you say, when we sit here and gain knowledge... It's not about us. It's about God. And so it's keeping that perspective where it needs to be. And God provides that wisdom. Perfect. That is a great answer. Let me give you a couple of things that these are all right. They're not wrong. A couple of things. One of the things I thought of uh, why we uh, it can't just be about what we know is because it has a tendency to turn into um, legalism. Uh, you could be a Pharisee super fast, like in three seconds. Uh, the more I've learned, it's very easy to look down on my nose at people because they don't know that yet. You, you feel me on that? Uh, uh, why it can't be about just how we live. That was the other question that I don't, I, we, we, we answered that. Uh, why it can't just be about what we live is because truth shapes your life. Truth shapes your life. Uh, how you, what you believe determines how you live. And so it can't just be about what I feel today. Uh, I heard somebody say one time, I don't care how you feel. What does the Bible say? (laughs) And I think that's so true. Like, it doesn't matter about how you feel today because I might feel, um, uh, uh, think about commitment to your spouse. You might not feel like being married that day, but God's word says that we honor marriage. And a part of honoring your marriage is to love your wife like Christ loved the church. So you serve her and you serve him. And so it doesn't matter if you don't feel like doing it that day. The Bible tells us that's what we do, right? Okay, so uh, truth shapes our life, so that's why it can't just be about what we live. Uh, and you, you answered the other question about why it can't just be about what we, about, about what we know. There you go. Uh, look at this other, uh, he also builds them up this way uh, in what they say. He says that they're able to instruct in verse 14, that you're able to instruct. Uh, that brings the, uh, a phrasing uh, like they're able to preach and teach, but they're also able to counsel like you know, one-on-one with, in relationship with people, they're able to, uh, to teach one another. Paul's saying, in light of what you know, that has influenced the way that you live, you got credibility and you're now able to teach one another how to grow in each other's faith. And you're doing that. You're ironing sharpens iron, iron sharpening iron here uh, in this way. Can you imagine reading this or somebody in this setting, it would be like somebody reading the letter of Romans to the people of Romans, uh, Rome, uh, in the church at Rome. And you heard the apostle Paul saying this about you. How built in your, up in your faith would you be? 
you charge hell with a water pistol is how built up you would be. I mean, you'd go after it. Uh, and uh, you would feel, this is Paul, the apostle, Paul, uh, the one who was blinded on the road to Damascus, the one who was killing Christians and then God stopped him dead in his tracks. And he said, not, not anymore. You're not going to kill Christians. You're going to save people uh, and you're going to introduce them to this Jesus whom you hated. Unbelievable. This is Paul who's encouraging and building up uh, these men and women and telling them how they have grown. And it's obvious he's a, he's a builder. Now, uh, look at this. He points out how they can help build ministry. He tells them that they can partner with him. That they can partner with him. Look at verse 15. Um, let me read it out of the message because I like it better. I don't know if anybody has the message. I read it out of the ESV, but I just, I love the word picture here. He says in verse 15 and 16, he says, So my dear friends, uh, do, don't take my rather bold and blunt language as criticism. It's not criticism. I'm simply underlying how very much I need your help. How very much I need your help in carrying out this highly focused assignment God gave me. This priestly and gospel work of serving the spiritual needs of the non-Jewish outsiders so they can be presented as an acceptable offering to God, made whole and holy by God's Holy Spirit. Paul, his mission um, was, and he was charged with, of reaching the non-Jew. And so he was charged with reaching the non-Jew, the Gentiles. And so he was going everywhere that he could uh, from the lowest of lows all the way to the temple courts. Acts chapter 9 tells us this, that his job was to carry the name from the lowest place to the highest place, to carry Christ's name everywhere and everything in between. And he's saying, that was my call. And I am inviting you, the church of Rome, to be a participant. This was my calling to reach these people far from God. And now this is your calling. I'm transferring this opportunity to you to be a part of the mission that God sent me here to do to reach people for Christ. You're a part of that mission as well. And I want you to partner with me in this. And um, then he moves on and he says uh, that in that mission, you've got a number two, prioritize Jesus, which is awesome. Verse 17, uh, he moves on and he says, in Christ Jesus, uh, then I have no reason to be proud of my work for God. Do you think anybody in the New Testament other than Jesus had reason to be proud for the work that he had done for Jesus? I think Paul would have been the guy who could have said, yeah, look what I've done. Look what he, I mean, literally, uh, I, I don't know. It depends on who you ask, but most of the New Testament other than the gospels, he wrote. I mean, this guy is amazing. He planted churches all over Asia, all over Europe. This guy was like in, like, depending on what generation you're from, you'll understand this or not. This guy was a baller. Like, that's just the way he was. Like, he just had it. And that's who Paul was. And, uh, and so if he had any reason to boast about what God had used him to do, he could have done it. But you see, Paul wasn't interested in building a name for himself. He was interested in deflecting any praise that he could have gotten and deflecting it onto the one whom call, who called him and who saved him. And he said, I'm going to spend my life in ministry for that God who changed my life. And he moves on and he says... 
um, for verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring Gentiles to obedience. Well, how did you do that, Paul? If you've ever wondered, quick little caveat on how you can share your faith with someone um, is this way, by word and deed, by what you say and what you do, uh, by the power of signs and wonders. Um, if anybody has ever had a miracle happen in their life, uh, nobody can argue with the miraculous that has happened in your life. And you share what God has done in your life and that opens the eyes of blind people. Moving along, he says, by the power of the Spirit, the only way you and I can share, the only way that the non-believing Gentiles could ever receive faith is if the power of God was on the person sharing the gospel. You can't do it in and of yourself. It only comes from God. And I think that we need to let that sit in our mind and then travel about 18 inches to our heart and realize that anything we do that is worth any value this side of heaven doesn't come from our own ingenuity, skills, training, and experience. It comes from the power of God in our lives. The Bible says in the book of Acts in chapter 1 that, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that word power, I don't know if you've ever heard it explained to you. It's where we get our English word dynamite. And it, that what the, what the Bible is saying is that you and I, when we receive the Holy Spirit, there is this explosive nature in our heart that we can't help but talk about what Christ has done in our lives. There was a time in the book of Acts in the early church where there were these two apostles who had uh, uh, had just been gone just crazy for Christ and in the the, uh, Sanhedrin and some other religious leaders said, hey, you got to stop talking about Jesus. And these men said, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. We, and then they said, these men have been with Jesus to which I would say understatement of the decade. Yes, they had been with Christ. And that's what happens to a person when they prioritize Jesus is there is this explosive, just unbelievable power from the Holy Spirit that comes out of their life. So he wasn't building anything for himself. He was building the church of Jesus Christ and he was modeling to these believers an important truth that I think we need to hit on really quick. Paul was desiring these believers as they build ministry in Rome to keep the main thing the main thing. You see, anytime any church, any small group, any, you know, small church, any ministry, any family gets sideways on prioritizing this person or that person, these people or those people or that specific man or that specific woman or that specific way of doing something. When we get sideways on that thing, we cease to do what God has put us here to do, which is to build his church. And we begin to build our own little kingdoms and let me just tell you the scariest thing for any church or any person when it, when it turns inward and becomes about everything else but Jesus, those people and that church have lost their first love. You see, there's a picture, the metaphor in your life, in your heart, there is like a little throne inside of every heart of every single person in this world. And the reality is, is that that throne is reserved for one king and one king alone. And his name is Jesus. 
And that's what's supposed to occupy the throne of your heart, the throne of my heart, the throne of every church, the throne of every small group, the throne of every ministry. That throne is reserved for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Why? Because that throne can only carry the weight that, 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 and the worthiness of Christ and Christ alone. If you put your family on that, uh, that throne, your family can't receive that praise and that glory and that honor that is reserved for for the king, which is Jesus. And so when we get sideways on whatever we put on that throne, whatever, whatever person, whatever ministry, whatever thing, whatever else that goes on that throne, our priorities get sideways. We are worshiping an idol and not worshiping the king who sits, who's supposed to be sitting on that throne. So what do we do when we fall on the slippery slope of not prioritizing Jesus in our life? Well, the church of Ephesus did that. The church of Ephesus lost her first love and deprioritized Jesus in her ministry and it just tailored down. And so what do we do when that happens to us personally? Well, Jesus said in the book of Revelation to the church of Ephesus, let me just read it to you so that I get it right. I don't want to wing it here. Uh, and he said, remember, Revelation 2, 5, remember Therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you first, uh, you did at first. So what do we do when we've fallen? We remember where we came from. When, has anybody, honest moment in church, anybody ever removed Jesus from the throne of their life? I'll be one of the first to raise my hand. Totally done that. Okay, so this is super practical then. So what do we do when we do that? First, we remember. Do you remember what it was like when you were close to Christ? Do you remember the practices and the things that you did that drew you into a deeper relationship with Him? Do you remember the feelings that happened in those moments when you were like, oh my gosh, I can't put my Bible down. I've got to run and be with other believers so that I can get encouraged. I've got to share what's happening in my life. Do you remember those moments? Anybody with me on that? You remember those? Yeah, Jesus is telling the church of Ephesus that if you've ever lost your first love, if you've ever not prioritized Christ, guess what you do? You remember those feelings of what you were doing when you were close and Jesus was your priority and then you repent. You remember those feelings and then you repent. What does repent mean? It means to turn away. You literally run the other direction. I was going this way, running away from Jesus. I'm running right back towards him and I'm doing I'm repeating. So remember, repent, and repeat. Do the things that you did before. You, you, you do the Bible study. You engage in uh, church. You are open in worship. You open your Bible. Instead of leaning back in your chair, and this is just the, how I like to talk, you're leaning forward, pen in your hand, Bible open, writing anything down that God speaks to your heart. When anybody opens God's word, whether that's a small group, whether that's at lunch, whether that's like you're open to learning from God in any moment, in any season, from any platform doesn't matter and then you lean into those things and you remember and you repent and you repeat if it happens what are you going to do you're going to what you're going to remember you're going to repent and then you're going to repeat repeat it for me again what are you going to do you're going to so if you fall on the slippery slippery slope of deprioritizing christ in your life because it will happen we can remember what it was like when we loved him repent and then repeat what, it, what we were doing when we were close to Jesus. So, 
he moves on, and this is probably my favorite part, just so you know. I could probably camp out here for the rest of the time, but I can't. Partner with me, prioritize Jesus, and thirdly, how they can help is preach the gospel. Um, Look with me in verse 20. He says, and thus, consequently, uh, I make it my ambition, it's my aim uh, to preach the gospel, uh, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. Paul, his aim, his mission, his life's purpose was to preach the gospel in places where nobody had ever heard the gospel before. He was a pioneer. You know that you're sitting today as a recipient of pioneers in America a couple of hundred years ago? who ventured out past the Mississippi River, past God's country of Oklahoma. And then I just learned that Arizona is now God's country because it's unbelievable and it's beautiful. And so then you move down this way and we today are recipients of their pioneer spirit to go where people uh, didn't know what was at the edge of New Mexico, what it was at the edge of this place. And they were taking us to this place and now we're sitting here. Now listen to this. Here's is even better because who cares about that, right? I mean, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad we're all here. But listen to this. Because of Paul's building spirit and his servant heart and his idea to advance the gospel to the places where nobody has heard, you today, church, are sitting in the seat as a recipient of the obedient faith of an apostle over 2,000 years ago who took the gospel to a place where nobody had heard Christ and then it just began to snowball and it began to roll like a tidal wave across the Atlantic Ocean over to uh, the Americas. It went to South America. It went to North America. It's gone to Canada. It's reached around the world. The Bible said in Acts 1-8 that you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to go to, to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it snowballed out. And you're sitting here today because of one guy's intense passion to preach the gospel where nobody heard it. And we are recipients of that today. Now that's good news. So let me, let me, let me point this out to you. Here's the reality of where we sit today. Paul wants to preach the gospel where nobody's heard. The reality is that there are 6,500, 6,500 unreached people groups in this world. These are people all over the world that have never heard the name and the glory and the fame of Jesus. Out of those 600 and uh, 6,500 people, 3,000 people groups are less than 2% have ever even heard of Jesus. Now, to be an unreached and unengaged people group, you have to have over 100,000 people in your people group. You have to have a language. You have to have some sort of kind of governance of an identifiable marker of you are a people. And today, there are sections of our world where nobody's even going. Like, they're unreached, 6,500, unengaged, 3,000. There are millions of people in our world who have literally never heard the name of Jesus. There are people all over this world who have never... You know how many Bibles I own? Too many to count, honestly. 
Do you have any Bibles you own? Maybe you own two, maybe you own 10, maybe you own 15, whatever it is. Like, you know, and we, and you know, the Bible's in multiple translations on the Version Bible app, but the reality is there are so many far remote places where there are no cell phone towers, there are no internet connections, and they don't have a copy of God's word and have never had it for thousands of years. And Paul is saying, I'm compelled to go to those people. And here's what I'm saying to you is that I think God might be calling some of you to go to those places because the gospel calls you to do ridiculous things that nobody else understands. It makes you look crazy. You're going to do what now? You're going to quit your job and be a missionary overseas? Where? Well, I don't really know, but I know that there are these people who've never heard about Jesus and I need to go because I've received it. So I think everybody should receive this. I think everybody should hear uh, this message of Jesus Christ, this powerful life changing message. Paul said in Romans 10 verse 14, we've studied it. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The reality is, is that we must live sent lives. I wear glasses. Anybody else wear glasses? Every morning when you wake up, what God is calling us to do in light of what we've learned, now it's all about how we're going to live. Every morning before your feet hit the floor, God has called you and called me to put on missionary glasses to see where we live as a sovereign point that God intentionally put us to live. There are people, I just had a text message from a friend today, that the, one of the largest unreached and unengaged people groups in the world is French Canadians in Montreal. And I thought, in our hemisphere? That's happening in our hemisphere? I can't even imagine that. That is unbelievable to me. And so some of us, we are going to live sent lives sent overseas. And I think some of us will go on short-term trips and some of us will go on long-term trips and some of us will say, I want to give my life to this because, listen, I have a friend who spent time in Cambodia in an unreached, unengaged people group and I, I, I literally start crying when I hear the stories of how these people go over there and they just start saying Jesus and something supernatural happens and their hearts are beginning to get softer and softer and softer and like a three-minute conversation which would take a three weeks in America to have a three minute conversation about Jesus. They're literally laying down their lives and giving their lives to Christ. And literally over about a five or six year uh, partnership with this, this people group, they've seen hundreds of people baptized every year, multiple times a year because they're going, they're going, they're, 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 they're sent and my heart is stirred to see that. And some, we will see this in our life. We'll go and we'll see that. And then others of us will say, man, I can't make that trip right now. But God has sovereignly and distinctively placed you right where you are intentionally, not just to be a teacher, not just to be an architect, not just to be in anything. You're not just in anything. You can connect people to Christ. And you, by the way you live, by what you know, how you live and how you act, you can literally, the Bible says in Matthew 5, you can be salt to people. Now, not, not too much salt, okay? Some of you need to calm down. So you don't need to be bitter and, and, and be too salty. That's all we, we need less salty, salty Christians in the world. We need 
perfectly seasoned and flavored Christians to live where God has placed you. And the reality is, is what salt does is it draws flavor out. And so what you're doing is as you live your life like salt, you're drawing the flavor out of life. And they're thinking, I don't know what you have. I don't get what you have, but you're wetting my appetite and I got to take a bite of whatever you're putting down. Okay. Are you with me? And God has placed you there for that. He also said, you're the light of the world. You'd be crazy to light a light and then put a, you know, a, a basket over it. You'd be, it'd be brain head. You'd be a knucklehead. Okay. It'd be dumb. You would never do that, but you would let your light shine so bright so that everyone can see it. That, that's what living like a missionary is where God has placed you in Chandler, Arizona or Tempe or Gilbert or Mesa or Scottsdale or Santan, wherever God has placed you. You're not just there by accident. You're there as a sent missionary every day. So when you wake up tomorrow, wipe the sleep out of your eyes, go brush your teeth and take a shower, put your missionary glasses on and say, as you're driving with intentional uh, direction to wherever God has placed you, say, I'm going to be a missionary today and see these people as God sees them. And it's my life mission to preach the gospel to them wherever I'm at. Number two. Number one, be a builder. Number two, be a servant. Paul says in Ephesians 6, uh, but with all your heart, do what God wants as slaves of Christ. Sometimes in the Bible, the word slave is translated as servant. Sometimes it's translated as bondservant. But the better word is the word doulos, which means slave. And you and I are slaves for Christ. We're servants for Christ. And Paul gives these great examples of how to be a servant. Uh, And, you know, one of the best ways that a servant can be a servant is to be present with people. He says in verse 22, uh, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. He wants to be present with the church at Rome. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At the end of the day, Paul wanted to be with these people in Rome. He wanted to be present with them. He wanted to, uh, you know, spend some time uh, getting to know them even more. And the way that a leader uh, is a servant, the only way you can be a, a leader and be a servant is if you're actually present in relationship with people. And so you got to be present. Now we got to move along because we're losing time here. But number two, it's my second favorite part tonight, uh, is personal sacrifice. Because it speaks so uh, much to my heart and what God's teaching me right now. Look at verse 25. Or 20, uh, yeah, 25. Uh, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid uh, to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia uh, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. Where, uh, When therefore I have completed this, I have delivered to them what uh, has been collected. I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know <clears throat> that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I got a question here, so get ready, guys. 
uh, he wanted, Paul wanted to be with them. We know that. He desperately wanted to be with them. Uh, but there was something that he had to do. There was something that he had to take care of first before he could be with them. These Gentile believers in Macedonia and Achaia have received the spiritual wealth of salvation. These non-Jewish Gentile people are now saved. They're in the faith. They've received this spiritual wealth of a relationship with God. And in that uh, moment of receiving that salvation, they were also, some of them had some material wealth as well. And so they heard by way of Paul and other believers that the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem, were in some serious trouble. And so Paul said to these people, and all the word got around and so they said it wouldn't be good for us to sit back and know that there is a need out there that we can meet, that we can go after. It wouldn't be good for us to just sit back and uh, somebody else will take care of it. How many times have we said that? And he said, no, 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 we're going to do something. And so these Gentile believers reached out in hopes of unity and unifying the body of Christ in the early church. Yes, they had problems with that, just like we do today. Uh, and, uh, and their efforts were, if we give them this gift, it, we, have, we have received a spiritual wealth from this Jewish God. And now we have a material means to meet their physical need. And we're going to step up and we're going to do this. And the Bible says that they felt like... Uh, that Paul felt like they owed it to them. It's that verse 27, look. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owed it to them. It was the idea of a spiritual debt that they had to them. Uh, for, uh, to them. So, let me ask you just, this is a super personal question. And if you want to answer it out loud, you can. I'm going to answer it out loud, and then maybe that'll give you some, you know, whatever to share. But, um... Let me ask it. To whom are you spiritually indebted to? These Gentile believers in these two other churches, were they felt spiritually indebted to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So much so that they stepped up and did something for them. Who are you spiritually indebted to? While you're thinking, let me tell you mine. I have a couple, but I'll give you one. His name's Tom. And he was my youth pastor uh, when I was a teenager in Oklahoma. And he put up with a lot of my junk and a lot of my attitude and all that stuff. And uh, had a lot of zeal with no wisdom, okay? And he put up with a lot of that. And there was a time when my family, we moved from Oklahoma to South Carolina. So I've lived now almost virtually on both coasts. And, uh, and I'll never forget the moment that he, uh, uh, he pulled me out after our youth group one Wednesday night. Everybody was gone and through tears and he starts making me cry and we're an emotional mess. And he's like, you call me, uh, cause he knew that God was going to call me to ministry. He just hadn't done it yet. And he says, you call me the moment that you surrender to ministry because God's going to use you in a way that you don't even understand. And I didn't understand that in that moment. I was a punk kid who was 15 years old. I had no idea what, uh, I, what God was going to even lay before me in my life, but he encouraged me. And then a few years later, after we moved back, I was working at a summer camp and he brought his students to a summer camp. And he literally, again, pulls me off to the side and pours 
I mean, bucket load after bucket load of encouragement and how he's seen God grow me and mature me in my relationship with God and how uh, he's seen me grow in my leadership. And in that moment, as I look back today, I'm indebted to the moments where he put up with me and walked me through what it looked like to follow Jesus. He discipled me. I'm indebted to Tom for what he has provided for me in my life. I could go on and on. There are several others. But who are you spiritually indebted to in your life? You don't have to answer, but if you want to, I'll give you a second. The reality is, is that uh, we all have somebody, wouldn't you agree? We all have somebody in our lives that we're spiritually indebted to. And that's how these people felt. So if you get that way of thinking in your life, that's how they felt in that moment. And uh, the tension here was that uh, Paul knew how they felt and knew that if he could just communicate that to the Jewish believers in, in Jerusalem, that maybe this church could be unified at a greater level. But he wanted to be in Rome. But he knew he had to go to Jerusalem. And so this was a moment for Paul to sacrifice what he wanted for what God wants. Have you ever had a plan in your life that you have yet to lay on the altar and sacrifice to God? God, this is what I want. And I know you're calling me to do this, but I'm not going to sacrifice this yet. Have you ever had one of those? I've had one of those, many of those. There are mo- uh, This is a true story. My wife's here and I didn't ask for permission to say this. And this happens all the time when I speak, so it's okay. Um, there was a time years and years and years ago, we've had three other kids since this kid, okay? So, uh, and we actually came out here on a vacation one time and she said, I don't, I don't think God's ever going to bring us to Arizona. I don't ever want to live here. Bam! <laughs> that was a plan eight years ago-ish. But then God has softened our hearts over years to say, here's our life's like surrender statement. God, it's wherever, whenever. So our yes is already on the table. Whenever you want to, whatever you want to do, wherever you want to do it is our answer is immediately yes. Why is that the case in our life? Because I've said no, that's why. And no is horrible. When you flat out disobey God, um, You flat out feel it. So, Paul wanted to be in Rome, but the gospel calls us to do crazy, crazy, crazy things. Uh, Let me tell you about his personal sacrifice. Can I do that real quick? Paul's personal sacrifice, it got real personal for him. He went on three missionary journeys. His desire was to go to Rome and ultimately to Spain, and he told them that already. John Stott, theologian and writer, he calculates his, uh, what, what it cost him. Are you ready? Look at this. You could, this is good to jot down. First missionary journey, Corinth to Jerusalem, 800 miles. Second journey, Jerusalem back to Rome or to Rome, 1500 miles. Third missionary journey, finally Rome to Spain, 700 miles. It cost Paul 3000 miles. He only wanted to go from Corinth to Jerusalem, ultimately to Rome, and it doubled his personal expense. It cost him something to do something for God. And let me just tell you this. It is going to cost us something in our lives to follow Christ. It's going to cost us something. 
The reality is, is that uh, we've got to be willing and ready to do it. Um, Church, this is what a servant does. Dads, moms, students, bosses, leaders. Let me ask you, are we the kinds of Christians that double our journey, that go the extra mile, that sacrifice uh, what we want for what's the good of the family, the good of the people that we lead? Because that's what a servant does. A servant says that what you need is greater than what I desire. And so I willingly sacrifice and lay it down, not without fighting because I'd rather be in Rome, but this I know is what God wants for us and what I know God wants for this church. And so we're going to do that. That's what Paul's saying. I'm going to do the hard work and go the extra mile and go out of the way. And that's what a servant does. So dads, that's what we do. Moms, that's what you do. Leaders, that's what we do for our people. This is the call of a servant. Personal sacrifice. Finally, a servant prays. Look at this. Verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together. That word is anguish. (laughs) Fight. The way you're going to get in this dogfight with me in Jerusalem, this is how it's going to work. You're going to fight on your knees. Now, the reality is, is that, hear, hear me, that's, probably the best thing you can do for your brother and sister in Christ. There is no greater thing than for a brother or sister to hear of a need that I have or that you have, and without you even knowing, they're on their face before God for you. I've sat across living rooms with couples that are bawling their eyes out in my house, and I have no clue what to say to them, and I try to muster something up, and usually it's not very good until we get on our face and pray for them that God would intervene. And a servant always doesn't have to have the right thing to say. They just need to know the right thing to do. And the right thing to do is always, always go to God in prayer first. Always. Martin Luther once said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. As natural as breathing in and out is, is as natural as prayer is for the servant of God. Look what he, he, uh, he says, he, he continues, he says, strive together with me in prayer to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Jerusalem. His first request was pray for protection. Paul was worried. He knew that there were people in Jerusalem that wanted to kill him. They didn't like him. They didn't like what he was doing. Maybe it was some of the same people he ran around with before. He came to faith in Christ. We don't know. I don't know. But he knew that there was tension waiting him in Rome and he wanted God to protect him. It reminded me of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. You're probably familiar with this. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, your enemies. For the Lord, your God, goes with you. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Can you imagine, Paul? That's what I'm wanting, guys. I need to be strong. I need to be courageous. What God's called me to do. I want to be with you, but I know I got to go here. Could you pray for God's protection in my life? He also asked them to pray for production. Verse 31, he goes on and he says, that you may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He's bringing a check. Sorry for being crass, but that's the reality. He's bringing money and he's bringing a word of unity to this church. Look what your brothers from another place are doing for you. They love you. And they want to see you grow and want to see you be unified with them. 
And he was looking for ministry to move uh, down the road. Move the ball down the field for football analogy's sake. They wanted to see spiritual, he wanted to see spiritual progress. And in that, um, look at this, uh, he prayed for God, he asked them to pray for God's will. Verse 32, so that by God's will I may come to you uh, with joy. Why would he come with joy? Because the church is unified more now because of those efforts. And the time that he had spent there, productive ministry. Uh, and be refreshed. That's like to hit pause. That's, you, it's kind of like he wanted a vacation, okay? <laughs> He'd been working hard. And he wanted to enjoy being with uh, his friends and uh, family in Rome. Uh, and enjoy their company. And may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So as mentioned before, he wanted to spend time with them and he wanted these people to pray uh, that uh, God's will would be uh, worked out and that he could finally be with them. Now, let me ask you a question. Maybe some of you are thinking, did these prayers get answered? Was anybody thinking that? Okay, so I was the only one in a room this size who thought that? Well, let me answer this uh, for you. Uh, Acts 21 through 23, uh, the apostle, uh, well, Luke, the detailed doctor, recorded these answers to prayer. How cool is that? So these people prayed, prayed for Paul, and then guess what happened? Boom! God answered his prayer, th- these prayers. So let me just give you a little note here. God wants to hear your heart and wants to hear your prayers. God's not surprised by uh, your concern. God is not surprised by your frustration. I heard a pastor say one time that pr- all prayer is is complaining to God till he changes your heart. Anybody with me on that one? Because that's how I feel sometimes. You're just complaining, complaining, complaining. Oh, wow, that sounds horrible. I need to rephrase how that goes. And God's softening your heart. But God wants to hear what's on your mind and what's on your heart. And here's what's so cool is that God wants to know what's in your heart and what you long for and the requests that are uh, burdening you and the things that you're carrying. And God is literally, as I'm standing at the edge of this platform, God is standing at the edge of heaven, ready and willing to step in and answer that prayer. But you got to ask him. He wants, I think that God isn't moving in my life enough and in your life enough or like we'd like him to because we're simply flat out just not asking. And he is literally standing there, feet hanging over going, would you just ask please? Because I really want to shower this onto you. And God wants to hear that. He wants to hear these specific prayers. Not God save my goldfish. I don't know if God's totally concerned about your goldfish. Probably a little more concerned about the people who've never heard of his name before. Not saying you don't have an emotional attachment to your goldfish and that God doesn't care about your emotion in your heart. I'm just saying goldfish, people who've never heard about Jesus and going to hell, probably don't balance the scale very well. Did I offend you for that? I'm just trying to help. I feel like Paul in verses 15 and 16. I'm just trying to help. Just trying to help and just trying to encourage So Norman Cousins was writing on the life of Dr. Albert Schweitzer and he quoted him saying this, history is willing to overlook almost anything. Aren't you grateful for that? (laughs) History is almost willing to overlook anything, errors, paradoxes, personal weaknesses or failures if only a man will give himself to others. See, it's your love for people. It's my love for people and servant-hooded heart. It's bad English. But a servant heart goes a long way in the hearts of people. The last thing that he does, and this is super easy, and we're going to cover a whole chapter in like three minutes. Are you ready? He says, be a shepherd. Be a builder. 
Be a servant and be a shepherd. You know, the imagery of shepherd and sheep in the Bible is literally outstanding. It's unbelievable. Uh, How it relates to Jesus and how it relates to you, how it relates to me, it's everywhere throughout the Bible. And these shepherds were with the sheep all the time, cared for them, fed them, uh, bathed them, gave them water, uh, you know, uh, I mean, even punished the sheep. I mean, they were with them all the stinking time. Uh, and it was such an unbelievable, um, honestly, calling in their day. Uh, and Paul gives us an example of how we are to be shepherds. And he does it two ways, three ways, sorry. First is shepherds are with people. We already know Paul's heart is to be with people, but verses 1 through 16 detail 28 different people. Let me just give you the breakdown here. Uh, 28 different individuals, 5 groups, 17 men, 9 women, 2 couples, 2 specific households, 5 slaves, 2 distinct people that he calls out, 3 fellow Jews, 2 apostles. He describes in detail uh, several different people and how they have influenced him. And he gives all these special notes of this woman was like a mother to me. This woman served uh, the church in such an incredible and unique way and you should welcome them. And as you read those, I don't have time to read them, but as you read all of those names, it's very, very obvious that you can't be a shepherd without being in relationship with people and loving people. Paul loved them. Insanely loved them. It reminds me of John 10, 3. The sheep hear his voice, Jesus says, and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Paul applied that immediately to his life. He knew these people in Rome. They were personal. They had a story. They had a connection to his heart. It wasn't just some number. It wasn't like a, you know, a, it, well, he wasn't hurting cattle with these Roman people in their church. Like he knew them and he was invested deeply in um, their lives. So what does this mean? If you're going to be a shepherd, which God's called every one of us to be, you have to love people. All kinds of people. This list is insanely diverse. Made up of men and women, Jew and non-Jew, wealthy and non-wealthy. Been a Christian for a long time, not been a Christian for very long. Insanely diverse. I don't know if we understand this or not, but, uh, uh, and in my world, like where I'm from, this is a problem, but churches aren't very diverse and we're a lot more diverse uh, than the churches that I've been at. But let me just say this, um, heaven is the most diverse place in the universe. And if you have a problem with that now, think about what it's going to be like for you in heaven. The body of Christ is diverse and a shepherd's call is to love no matter what. To love no matter what. And let me just say this, you probably aren't shepherding and leading people at least the way God wants you to if you don't love them no matter what. So notice what he calls them to do, verse 16. At the very end of all that list, greet one another with a holy kiss, not signing up for that class, just so you know. Holy kiss class, not into that. He's calling for their affection, more like a handshake or a hug, right? Like, I don't want to hold another dude's hand. Anybody with me on that one? Not interested. This hand is reserved for one woman and one woman alone, and it's my wife. And then if my kids' hands aren't sweaty, I'll hold their hands too. 
But I'm not holding another dude's hand. And I'm not even going to hold another lady's hand. So it always bothers me when you're in church and they say, grab the hand of a neighbor. I'd be like, I'd be more pressed to go, hey, come on, let's do this. But I'm not doing this. Paul's not interested in really Eskimo kisses or you can save those European cheek kisses all you want. That's fine. But I'm not into that. What Paul's saying is more love these people. Shake their hand. Hearty handshake is what the message translation says. Or hug their neck. That's what he's saying. Love them. Be affectionate towards them. But you don't have to smooch them, okay? And then he says, he speaks of their unity. Verse 16, he says, all the churches uh, of Christ greet you. That's another moment to say, hey, these other churches that are Gentile churches and Jewish churches, they're not your enemy. Your enemy is Satan. So I know that they might wear suits and preach out of a certain Bible and sing out of a book. Uh, and then we're over here loud and we got smoke and lights and we're really casual. Like, they're not the enemy. They're on the same team, man. Like, same team, different position. But we're all moving to reach people for Christ and to preach the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And he's saying, listen, these people are your family. Now look at this. Last thing. I have 45 seconds. Are you ready? Shepherd's work. So they, 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 they're with people uh, and then they work. Uh, and look at what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine uh, that you have been taught. Avoid them for such a person does not serve Christ, but serves their own appetites, their own cravings. And they're smooth talkers and flattery and they deceive the hearts of the naive. How do they work? They warn their friends. Number two, they acknowledge their ways. It's not just about pointing out all the wrong. Everybody can point out wrong, but can you acknowledge the good things that people do? Verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want, uh, so that I rejoice over you. He acknowledges their ways. Their testimony of their life has spread throughout the whole region and Paul found out about it. Shepherds acknowledge their ways. Uh, Then he also works by calling for wisdom. Verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want or I desire you to be wise, to have some discernment as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. A calling for wisdom, not knowledge. I appreciate that comment uh, earlier, but wisdom. And then he works by conveying their warranty. This is great. You know, you got a warranty. My dryer went out. I have four kids. How do you think that's going? I'm trying to see if this thing is under warranty. Warranties are amazing because warranties are promises. Look at this promise. Verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Awesome. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Your warranty in Christ is that God wins and Jesus is with you. God wins and Jesus is with you. And lastly, and I can't read it, but you can read it on your own. Shepherds witness to Christ. The doxology, it's, it's Paul relishing in who Jesus is and what he has done in his life. Verses 25 through 27, he talks about more people in those in-between verses. So Paul has given us a great example to follow and he wraps up his best work, I think. And he calls us, he says, I'm going to go build to the uttermost parts of the world. I'm going to serve tirelessly, even if it costs me something. And I'm going to shepherd because I love people. He said, that's what I'm going to go do. And Rome, I need you to do that too. And Chandler, I need you to do that. And Santana, I need you to do that. And Scottsdale, I need Chandler. Like Cornerstone, I need you to do that. I need you to be a builder. I need you to be a servant. And I need you to be a shepherd. More than you ever have before. And in light of what we now know, all 16 chapters of the book of Romans, 
I'd say we're highly equipped to be the best builders, the best servants, and the best shepherds that God's called us to be. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this great group of people who I've grown so fond of. And uh, God, I pray that we take this and we are not swamp Christians, but we're rivers of life Christians with what we've learned. May we gain wisdom from this. May we be transformed. May this be a moment where the renewing of our mind happens and we change the way that we think and we live differently. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you guys for letting me hang out with you. Appreciate it. Thank you.